Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. It is good to be here with you guys. It's good to see your faces. It's been a few weeks. Uh, as always, thank you to the worship team for the, the worship set. Uh, it's a pleasure to me to be able to share the stage with my kids. I had another one up on the, up on the stage here tonight. And, um, and it's just, it's a miracle, really, because um, we gave them a lot of drugs when they were kids. You know, we, we drugged them to church. We drugged them to Sunday school. We drugged them to VBS. We drugged them to home groups and prayer meetings and... Um, and thankfully, the effects of the drugs have uh, they've made their mark, you know, because they're all walking with the Lord, at least the older ones. We appreciate it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, by, by his grace. But um, we're, we're in the book of Acts tonight. If you want to open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, um, I prepared a message, was it two weeks ago for, for this chapter? And um, we had a little bit of a snowstorm. I'm not the kind that just kind of like lets it sit and then just like preaches the message I pre- you know, prepared two weeks ago. It's like stale bread at that point. So you get a brand new one from the same chapter um, tonight. And let's just pray and then we're going to get into uh, the message that we've got. So Father, we just thank you again for being here. We thank you, Lord, that you're with us. And uh, so with, with open hearts and full expectation, Lord, we ask that you would illuminate your word and that it would speak to us and meet us where we are. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is not infrequent when you engage in um, a spiritual uh, conversation with an unbelieving person or someone that you're trying to um, see where they're at with God or uh, someone that you want to share your faith with, that you will hear the um, reply or the statement they will say to you that they um, don't believe the Bible um, because it's filled with contradictions. You ever heard that one before? Well, I don't believe the Bible because the Bible is filled with contradictions, you know, uh, too many contradictions. So I actually looked up the word contradiction, and uh, the word in the dictionary, it means a combination of statements, ideas, or features of a situation that are opposed to one another, you know, so uh, conflicting things that don't align. Like when someone says, I distinctly remember forgetting that. You know, that is a contradiction, and we all kind of understand what that means, you know. Now, when I was younger in my faith, I felt like it was my uh, responsibility and my calling to uh, defend all of the supposed contradictions that people said that there were within the Bible. But uh, what I soon began to realize is that people that um, say that the Bible is full of contradictions, most of the time, they haven't actually read the Bible for themselves. They're just telling you what they've heard other people say about the Bible that probably also haven't read the Bible. Um, The other thing that I began to realize as I uh, walked with God and um, got to know God more and more uh, is that they're actually right. That, that there actually is something to what they're saying, they probably just don't even actually realize it. Because if, you, if you've only you know, read the Bible once or your exposure is limited or something like that, you, know, you can see that, that there would be contradictions in the Bible. I mean, you read in the Bible and it talks about Jesus as being both a lion and a lamb. And those two things are extremely contradictory, the one to another. Uh, It almost seems like those two natures cannot coexist in the same being, both lion and lamb. The Bible tells us that God is only good, yet he created darkness. 
And as you think about that, you think, well, how could something that is only good, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, how could a God who is light create darkness? The Bible teaches us that God is ever-present, and yet so often it seems like God is strangely absent. The Bible tells us that God is all-powerful and that he can do all things and that nothing is too hard for him. And yet he somehow allows evil to exist and he allows evil to persist. And so someone who's looking at all of that from a distance can actually come to the conclusion that the Bible is full of contradictions and they have some validity in their argument. Now, it is is still kind of a weak argument to say that the Bible is full of contradictions. And the reason is because you don't have to live very long, a life in this world, to realize that two things can be seemingly contradictory. And yet, if you add information, you find that what seems contradictory is actually a correlation. For example, two people can be looking at the exact same object, and one of them can swear by their life that they're looking at a rectangle. And another person looking at the same exact object can swear by their life that they're looking at a circle. And it would seem contradictory that it has to be either a rectangle or a circle because it cannot be both. But when you interject the missing information, which is that that object that's being observed is actually three-dimensional, then both things can be true at the same time. It can be both a circle and a rectangle if it is, in fact, a cylinder. And so something that seemed contradictory actually has harmony and there's correlation when the information comes. Now, I have learned as a Christian, and probably you have too if you spent time around the Bible, that God is so big and he's so mysterious that it is pertinent that everyone who follows him have an invisible file somewhere in their mind that is labeled, wait for more information. Because there are times that things, God says things that don't line up with our experience, or they don't line up with our education or things that we've been told, or they don't line up with our observation, and it would seem that we're hearing or learning things that are contradictory to what we've already accepted as true, or maybe they even are true. And what do you do with that? Well, you file it in the wait for more information folder because God does a lot of things and he, and he tells us just enough to confuse us sometimes. And the Bible does not actually tell us everything that there is to know about God because it is impossible for us to know everything that there is to know about God. Job would say that all that we can observe of him and all that we can know of him, that those are the mere edges of his ways. A God so big as our God and so infinite as our God is beyond finding out. And the Bible declares that emphatically. So God doesn't tell us everything that we can know or there is to know about him in the Bible. He doesn't tell us that he wants us to know everything about him. He wants for us to know him. And so what he does is he gives us enough that we will pursue him and that we will follow after him because he doesn't want to be known about, he wants to be known. Thus, as we come to Acts chapter 15, we come to one of the greatest contradictions 
that seemed to be on the pages of Scripture, which actually then turned into the greatest conflict of the early church and has been one of the greatest questions of Christians for the past 2,000 years. And if I haven't piqued your uh, curiosity yet, let's read Acts chapter 15, verse 1. It says this. It says that certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, just to give you a little context, in case you're just joining us for the first time, we're following the life of the Apostle Paul. And Paul has been saved by Jesus. He's been prepared, and now he's been sent, and he has been on a missionary journey that has brought him throughout Asia Minor, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ and planting churches as he's gone. And now the apostle Paul and Barnabas, his partner, they have returned back to the church that they started from, a church in a region called Antioch, which was not in Jerusalem. And Paul has been commissioned or committed with the message of the gospel to Gentile people, that is non-Jewish people, that God has opened the door of salvation to. And so in Antioch, there is a mix of both Jewish nationality Christians and Gentile Christians. And in this time, this period now, there are some Jews that come from Israel, the region of Judea, where the church began. And they come into this place where there are Gentile believers, Gentile Christians, And they are told by these Jewish missionaries from Jerusalem that unless they are circumcised, a Jewish custom that we'll talk more about, and unless they keep the law of Moses, that is, they make commitment that they're going to adhere to the laws of Moses, that they cannot be saved. And thus, a contradiction appears to be in place now in the early church. Okay, now I'm going to give you four things tonight. I'm going to give you the contradiction and then the conflict that comes from it and then the conclusion that they come to and then the calling that all of it means for us. So the first thing, of course, is the contradiction. What's the contradiction? Here it is. Is that for 2,000 years prior to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God related to his people through a set of laws and commandments that were delivered to them through Moses on Mount Sinai. That law was specific, it was strict, it was binding, and it was non-bending. And more than that, it was given by a God who declares concerning himself that he does not change, nor does he change his mind. And circumcision, which if you don't know what that is, look it up, okay? Don't click the images tab, just look it up and read the information and you'll understand, okay? But circumcision, which we will talk about its origins a a little bit more further on in our study, circumcision became the sign or the symbol or the abbreviation to the fact that you were one who kept that law, that you entered into that covenant wherein you were in relationship with God on the terms of the contract of the law of Moses. So circumcision was the symbol of that contract. And so for 2,000 years, to the people of God on earth, 
salvation was the byproduct of circumcision and keeping the law of Moses. That's the status quo. That's the way of God. Now Jesus comes and Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus rises from the dead. He commits the word of the gospel, which is a word of salvation by faith in what Jesus did apart from the works of the law. And so the message that's being brought to the church and brought to the Gentiles is that it isn't by circumcision, nor is it by keeping the law of God that we are made right with God. But Jesus came, demonstrated the kind of relationship that God wants to have with humanity. Then Jesus himself removed the sin issue, which is what the law was put there for. And now by simply placing your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins... You can come into a right relationship with God and you can relate to him and know him apart from circumcision and apart from the law. And this is a seemed contradiction because now the word preached is that you can have relationship with God, not by the law, but by placing your faith in Jesus and surrendering your life to God, not relying on the law. So here's the question that would then rise to both the Jewish believers and non-believers that had been living according to this custom for so long. And also to the church, the believers, the New Testament Christians. The question is, what part do the Ten Commandments and the Law of Moses play in a New Testament faith-based, grace-based, blood-based salvation? Or what part of God's law am I, as a believer today, accountable for? What strings are attached to Jesus paid it all? What is my relationship to the law of God? And that seems like a contradiction. In one, a God who does not change says, this is what I require. And then that same God now says, that is now not necessary. It seems contradictory. And so that contradiction created a conflict a conflict between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. There was tension between the Jews and the church who were claiming to follow the same God. And here was the conflict, is that the Jews lived their whole life striving to keep 613 laws, customs, and traditions. And the Christians now, especially the Gentile non-Jewish Christians, who are now following the same God, we're saying none of that matters anymore. Just trust Jesus and you can be saved and, and you don't have to keep the law. And the Jews reply to the Gentiles, even the believing Jews, even the saved Jews, their reply was, no way. You can't get off that easy. You don't know what it was like for me to have to live according to that for so long. And so we'll give you this, that Jesus is the umbrella Okay, after you have paid your deductible and shown your maintenance records, then Jesus covers the rest. But you're not just getting in without going through everything that we, we went through. He will be your insurance policy, but you're not off the hook. And in their mind, they had a valid point. And even to a, a, a non-partial observer from the outside, listening to that, they would say, oh, well, you know, the, that God did say <laughs> that these are my ways, these are my laws, do these things and live. You know, how do you just negate such a large part of the Bible? 
I mean, you guys know that the Old Testament carries a lot more pages than the New Testament. So how can we say that now none of that actually matters as it comes into a relationship with God? And thus it turned into a heated conflict. Notice in verse 2 of chapter 15. It says, When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them. That means that it started as a civil discussion, and then they raised their voices, and then they started to get red-faced, and then they started to get really, really, really passionate, and to a point where someone said, okay, well, that was no small discussion or debate that just happened in there. It says that when they had no small dissension and disputation, it says that they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. So they they come to a point now in the middle of this uh, conflict in the whole thing where the, 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 the conflict was so complicated that they couldn't solve it with the Bible. In other words, they were not able to even though they had the same ruler, even though everyone said, can we just use the scriptures as our guide on this, is that they could not come to a resolution to say that this is right or this is right based on just the Bible. And by the way, did you know that there are issues and there are conflicts that arise in life that the Bible does not have a specific answer to? If you have not come across that yet, just wait. Okay, because sometime you are going to come across uh, that in your life. All right, now for these guys, Romans was not yet written. They couldn't go to Romans. Galatians was not yet written. They couldn't go to Galatians or Ephesians or any of the other New Testament things that we have. So they said, we're just going to appeal to the apostles on this. Let's go to Jerusalem and let's talk to the people that were closest to Jesus and the people through whom this gospel first was initiated into the world. And let's listen to what they have to say. Now, what do you do? This is a valid question. I want you to think through it. What do you do when you come across something, an issue, a conflict, a problem, you need an answer, and the Bible does not speak specifically to the situation for which you need help? What do you do? What do you do when church practices in a church that you are going to make you feel uncomfortable, okay, because of styles or decisions that are being made, and the Bible doesn't say specifically uh, whether that's right or wrong? What do you do uh, when you're in a situation where you're wondering in yourself, is it okay for me to sing a worship song that maybe has lyrics that are imperfect, The words in a worship song are not theologically 100% correct. If I sing that song, am I sinning against God? Am I grieving him in some way? Is it okay for me as a Christian, a believer in Jesus, to take a yoga class? I know if I research the history of that, that it has bad roots. But for me... I'm not interested in the roots. I like stretching. And, And so I'm not attached to the roots of it. Is that okay for me? Will Jesus go with me to a Coldplay concert? Or will he wait in the car and when I come out, I have to explain myself or reestablish a connection with him because he wouldn't, what, what do I do in that instance in that? Is God in a church that teaches from the Bible but doesn't teach through the Bible, line upon line and verse by verse? And sometimes it can be more serious. 
What do you do when there's an abusive person that's attached or connected to you that has done much harm to you or to your family or people close to you that now all of a sudden claims Christ and they want access to your life again and the Bible just says, well, just forgive those that trespass against you. And you know that it's not that simple because you're not so sure that their confession or their profession is actually true and the stakes are very, very high. What do you do when the Bible is not specific? Okay, well, watch what they do. They say, we're going to go to the apostles about this. And so in verse 3, it says, being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenix and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. So they arrive, they share, they give testimony. And then in verse 5, the issue arises. It says, there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed. Okay, so these are educated, professional, accomplished Jewish scholars of an elite group of Jews. There was only 6,000, which in a nation that size was a, large, a very small group, very exclusive. They were the authority on the ways of God and on the word of God. But now there are some of those Pharisees that have placed their faith in Jesus. And so they have credibility. They know the Bible. And they said that it was needful to circumcise them, the Gentile believers, and to command them, demand of them, that they keep the law of Moses. And so the apostles and the elders came together to consider this matter. So everybody now gets in the same room and they say, we got to figure this thing out. And so verse 7, it says, and when there had been much disputing, all right, pause right there for just a minute. So they again come to the realization. They now have all of the big guns. All of the people that know the most on both sides are all together in the same room. You have the Pharisees on one side that are the experts for the Jews. And you have the apostles that were with Jesus firsthand through whom the gospel came into the world on the other side. And even in that setting, they are not able, using just the revealed scripture that they had, to come to a resolution. There was much disputing, and yet there was no conclusion. And so what was the solution? How does it play out? Watch this, continuing in verse 7. It says, After there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us, that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knows the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. And God put no difference between us and them, the Jews and the Gentiles, purifying or cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Peter appeals to what God had evidently done through his life in their sight. 
He says, listen, you guys know that God chose me to be the one that would bring the gospel to the Gentiles for the first time. Prior to me going to Cornelius, there had been no Gentile conversion or Gentile salvation. And when I simply preached to them about Jesus and the cross and the forgiveness of sins, I watched as they believed in their heart the things that I was saying. I saw the Holy Ghost fall upon them in the same way that he fell upon us at the beginning. They weren't circumcised. They weren't keeping the law. They didn't do any of the things. And yet God sealed them and bore witness to their faith in what Jesus did by giving them the Holy Ghost. And we believe that we're saved by faith in Jesus and that that's how we are saved, us Jews, and that's how they are saved. God made no distinction or difference among us and he did it by faith. Peter says, this is what God has done. Okay, listen, here's solution number one when you don't know what to do because the Bible doesn't say specifically is lean upon the experience and counsel of the experienced. Peter says, essentially to the people, he says, listen, this is what God is doing. God is is doing this. You can argue with him. You can say that he's wrong. You can rebel against it. But at the end of the day, God is doing it. We're witnesses of it. We're experiencing it. We're the beneficiaries of it. And this is what it is. He's not asking our permission. This is what he is doing. Now listen to me, church. God is the same. And God does not change in his character or in his person. But our God is not a static God. Our God is a moving God. And God is unfolding his plan as he moves and as time progresses. This is what he does. Jesus said that the spirit of God is like the wind. You you know its effects, but you can't tell where it's coming from and you can't tell where it's going. And there is nothing more unpredictable than wind. Because wind will go one direction and then wind will turn on a dime and wind will go another direction. And wind is still wind. Wind didn't change. It's just the same. It's just moving in a different direction. And, and, and you, you, you can get yourself in a place where you become so locked in to a moment that God is doing something that when God shifts or does something differently than what you are accustomed to, you think that there's something wrong with either God or with you. I I think that sometimes, you know, we can get into a place where uh, we feel distant from God. Anybody ever, you know, like you you look at your life and you think, okay, I can't quite put my finger on it, but for some reason, I just feel distant from God. And I remember hearing a preacher one time say that if you uh, feel distant from God or if you can think of a time in your life when you were closer to God than you are right now, then guess who moved? And, and, and you know, the guilt complex of, of humanity says, I did. You know, I, I moved away from God. I've, I've back, you know, the whole thing. I don't think that's always true. I think sometimes God moved and you stayed. <laughs> you, you, he, he's going a different way. How many of you have ever connected with God in a particular way? You prayed, you prayed a certain way or at a certain time of day or uh, you, you used a certain uh, method that you, and God just met you. I mean, there was just something so profound about the way God met you. And you said, I found it, I cracked the code. And then you tried the same exact thing the next day and God was gone. 
You're like, you can't pierce through like even the thoughts of your own mind trying to connect with God. And it's just, he's gone. Because God will not be confined to the boxes that we try to place him in. Okay, and so they were in a place here where God was doing things in a different way. He didn't change, but he wasn't using Moses anymore. He wasn't using the law anymore. He used the cross. That's what all of that was moving towards. And he calls to follow him. And it was the experience of Peter to be able to say, hey, listen, I was there. I saw it. This is what God is doing. And so first of all, the experience of those that are in it. Second of all, the testimony of fruitful others. Notice verse 12. It says, then all the multitude kept silence after Peter gives his testimony. And they gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And so Peter says, listen to these guys now. And so Paul and Barnabas stand up and they say, hey, we just spent a couple of years traveling around Asia Minor. We planted a bunch of churches. We saw the spirit fall upon Gentile people in Gentile regions. We saw miracles happen. We saw things that only God could do happen in people's lives. And it was not by the law of Moses. None of those people were circumcised. God responded to their faith and those people are now saved. And so God is doing this whether you like it or not. That is the testimony of Barnabas and Paul. And then uh, now thirdly, in verse 13, not just the experience of the experience, that's Peter, the testimony of fruitful others, that's Paul and Barnabas. But now we get in verse 13, the witness of theology. And what I mean by that is that though there is not a chapter and verse that specifically says this is what's happening, the sum total of scripture lends credence to what we're experiencing and seeing here. And that's done by James, the apostle. Notice in verse 13. It says that after they held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken to me. Simeon, Peter, has declared how God at the beginning first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this, the fact that this happened, agree the words of the prophets as it is written in the Bible, the Old Testament. After this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. Why? That the residue of men, the remainder of the nations, other people than the Jews, might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, says the Lord, and watch God's authority, who does all these things. God says, I'm not going to ask your permission. I'm not going to make it perfectly clear to you <laughs> in the X, Y, Z of it all. I'm just going to do it, and I'm the Lord who does it. And then James concludes verse 18, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. He doesn't tell us everything, but he knows everything, and he's going to move whether we know it or not and whether we like it or not. James concludes verse 19, Wherefore, my sentence is, my suggestion, is that we trouble not them. I'm sure the Gentiles breathed a great sigh of relief upon hearing this suggestion. They agreed, yes, please, no circumcision, <laughs> which from among the Gentiles are turned to God but, he says, verse 20, that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols 
and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. There are probably a few things that we should have warned them against that they should uh, steer clear of. We'll write them of those things. And then he says, for Moses of old time has in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. So James just says, listen, uh, I, I agree with what Peter is saying. I'm looking here at the word and I'm seeing in the scriptures that God has foretold of days when he would reach out to the Gentiles. He said nothing about them keeping his law or his circumcision. This is as biblical as we can uh, uh, surmise. And so let's write to them. Let's not trouble them to put a yoke on them that we ourselves could not uh, ourselves keep. And we will warn them about the things um, that will hurt them, you know, and so they, they kind of give this whole uh, um, answer in all of this. Now, now, let's read on and let's see the outcome of it, because really the rest of the chapter is just the fallout of what we already know is going to happen, but I don't want to skip it, so let's read it, and then I want to talk to you about the contradiction uh, that still exists, uh, even though we don't understand it, um, what changed things. Watch this. He says, verse 22, it says, It pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, whose surname Barsabbas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words subverting your souls, unsettling you, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. That did not come from uh, the apostles. That didn't come from the top. Uh, that was their own um, idea. He says, it seemed good unto us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent, therefore, Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. And so just in case you would uh, be told by some that these letters are forgeries or that they're uh, um, uh, not, not sincere, he says we're going to send some people that will testify that have reputation. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication, which is just sexual immorality or sexual impurity, sex outside of marriage and all things uh, related to that, from which if you keep yourselves, you shall do well, fare ye well. He says these, are this, these were the issues of their day. Now, there are new issues in our day, things that uh, you know that you should probably stay away from. How many in here um, are really tempted lately with drinking blood? Anyone? Yeah, good. You're doing well. <laughs> There's probably some other things on the list that would be a little more challenging, but he says, we'll talk more about it. He says, so when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle, which when they had read, they rejoiced for the comfort and Judas and Silas, being prophets also themselves, exhorted the brothers with many words and confirmed them, and essentially encouraged them and said, no, you guys are saved. You are legit. You, you don't have to be circumcised or keep the law. God is with you. And after they had tarried there for a space, they were let go in peace from the brothers unto the apostles. Notwithstanding, it pleased Silas to abide there still. So Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch teaching and preaching 
the word of the Lord with many uh, others also. Now, uh, this chapter that we've read thus far, what it does do is that it answers the question of how they resolved the conflict. There was a, a, a contradiction, and then there was a conflict, and we see the resolution of the conflict. But what we don't see an answer to in this thus far is, is the contradiction, how that for 2,000 years, this was what God required, non-bending, and that now, okay, now he's saying it doesn't matter anymore. This is null and void. It's not there. Now, we also know that, that this was not an answer to the uh, conflict because not everyone went along with it. There was a whole group of people that made it their life mission to follow Paul everywhere he went and to tell everyone that he was a false teacher because he wasn't telling people that they needed to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. So this didn't satisfy everyone. And so how can someone who believes in Jesus not be accountable to the law of God? That's the question. It's a question that all of us struggle with right? How is it that I cannot be accountable or what part of the law of God am I accountable to or not accountable to? Now to understand it, we go back to the Garden of Eden, way back in the very beginning. Because when men and women, men and women were first created, the Bible tells us that, that we were created in the image of God. That is that we were created three-part beings. We were spirit, soul, and body. The spirit being the part that was in communion, that was linked to God. The soul being the invisible essence of what we are invisibly, our mind and our emotions. And then our body, which is the physical medium whereby we relate to each other and we relate to a physical world. Now, we all understand that 90% of our being is the invisible. 90% of what makes me me is not what you see of me physically, but what makes me who I am and my personality and the way I think and my gifts and talents and what I can contribute and the way, the way I think, all of those things, that's the essence of who I am. The physical part of me is only about 10% of that. It's how all of that is expressed. That's why death frustrates people so much because we, we grow so much. We develop, we expand, we un- unfold and all this, and, and we're just getting more complex in the invisible part of us while our body decays and then it dies. And it's like you just grew for all these years becoming something and now you're just gone and and it doesn't quite compute. Because what we are invisibly is more than what we are physically. And so the spirit of God was in communion with the spirit of man, which was the essence or the life for his soul. And his body was at the bottom of that chain. It was just simply a physical medium. It was almost an immaterial thing. And so man, prior to sin, prior to the fall, lived in perfect balance. The appetites of the body and of the life of the soul, they were in perfect balance. There were no restrictions placed upon man at all. There was no law as it were. There was no limitations or rules. God said, you may freely eat of all of the trees in the garden, except for one. There was one restriction, and that is that they were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, because of that balance and because of that uh, life, that connection with God, there was also no abuses, there were no excesses, and there were no addictions. 
You didn't ever see Adam like sneaking off and like rolling up some of the leaves from some of the things in the garden and just being like, I'm just, I, I just really like this plant over here, you know, a little bit more. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't restricted from it. But, 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 well, let's, let's not get into that. I sense trouble coming if we continue down that road, okay? What we do know is that they were, there were appetites. We know that Adam was lonely. He was aware of the fact that he was alone and that there was no help meet for him. We know that there were needs because God said you may eat of the trees, which means that they needed food. And there were also desires. We know that because Satan was able to tempt Eve playing upon desires that she had. So even though man was not fallen, man had appetites, needs, and desires, but because men and women, and when I say men, you know I'm not saying just, I'm saying they, okay? They were connected to God, and thus the higher life dominated the being. There was never the need or even the possibility of excess or of destructive misuse of food or substances or sex or work or hobbies or a singular activity. But when men and women fell, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, God said, in that day you will surely die. And that day when they did that, the spiritual connection, the communion that existed between human and God, the maker and the creation was broken. And because we are made in the image of God, our soul has a God-shaped capacity, meaning that the, the life, the soul of man can only be filled, fed, and satisfied by something as big as God. And when God was now absent from that equation, man immediately felt the effects of that miss, that, that lack. The appetite was immediately known. The emptiness was immediately felt. There was immediately an understanding that there's something missing. I need something. I'm hungry for something, even though I don't know what it is. I'm empty. I'm not full anymore. I was created to be filled with God. And once God is gone, now there's a massive void. And here's what happened. Is that the body, the physical part of man, became the only inlet or outlet for the soul. Because the spirit was now dead. So the only option of humanity after the fall was to turn to the body or the flesh as a means of satisfying the void in the soul. Man became sick because he was no longer attached to God. Now in the world of healthcare and health and wellness and all that kind of stuff, you have two things. You have a cure and you have a drug. Okay? The, the cure fixes the problem. The drug masks the symptom. It alleviates symptoms temporarily. Now, the cure for man's problem would be to reattach to God because God is the solution, the satisfier of the soul. That's not possible in this instance. So the drug becomes anything that will satisfy the emptiness or the void that exists inside. Anything. You can fill it with work, exercise, food, sex, games, content consumption. You can fill Do you remember that scene? It's, it's in one of the Back to the Futures when like, they have the, the DeLorean, the time machine, and it's supposed to run on plutonium, but they can't find plutonium like way back in the past. 
So Doc Brown creates like this vegematic like conversion thing where you can basically just throw anything into the flux capacitor and now you have enough energy. That's what humans became. We just became like, it's supposed to have plutonium, but we can't get that. So just throw anything in there that you can find and feed on it. That's fallen man. We will consume anything to try to cover the emptiness that we feel being apart from God. Now, when God found Abraham, and I know I'm jumping thousands of years at this point, but when God found Abraham, God found a man who knew he could not be satisfied by the things that this world gives or anything that he could do with his body or put into his body or his life. He knew inside that the answer was somewhere else. And Abraham was a man who was willing to give up everything in order to find the cure and to be attached to God again. That's what God found in Abraham. And so Abraham came into a relationship with God and he began to learn what it meant to be satisfied by God even though he was still in a fallen body. Now, God had a plan for Abraham, called him, and told him that, listen, through your life is going to come the universal solution to what happened to man and what you experience in me is going to be given to everyone through you. I'm going to use your life to send a savior. And then God gave Abraham a covenant. He said, listen, I'm going to give you a sign that represents the relationship that exists between you and me. Now, we don't have time to read the chapter, obviously. But if you read Genesis chapter 17, God made a promise to Abraham and he says to him in the promise, he says this, he says, I want you to walk with me and be whole. That's what happens when someone walks with God. You become whole because he's the cure for the life and you become a whole person, a whole human. And then God said to Abraham, you're going to be multiplied, changed, fruitful. You're going to be eternal because of your relationship with me, because you are connected to me. That's going to be the outcome of it in your life. And then God said in the same chapter, Genesis 17, I'm going to give you a sign of this promise, of this covenant, of this relationship that exists between us. And Abraham says, okay, I'm all for it. Let's go. God says, you and all of your descendants and those that will walk with me will be circumcised. And Abraham said, what's that? And God said, let's talk about that later. <laughs> Circumcision. God says that this is going to be the sign of the covenant. What is circumcision? It is a cutting away of the flesh. That's what it's referred to as. In other words, God is saying that relationship with me means that you forsake satisfying your soul by the means of the physical appetites. You cut off the flesh and you reattach to me, and I become the source and the substance of your life. That's the only way it's going to work. You cannot feed your life from both directions. There are two soils and one root, and your root must be in me. Therefore, the flesh must be cut off, and it's the sign of circumcision. It was a sign. It was not a right. It was not the DMV where you check a box, and if you didn't check the box, you're not in. It wasn't God saying, like, you have to keep this ritual. It was God saying, no, no, no. The relationship is based upon a surrender to me and a cutting off of the flesh. 
It's no longer your appetites, but it's your spiritual connection with me because life doesn't come from the body. Life comes from God. And so circumcision is a sign. Now, as with anything over time, the sign overshadowed the substance. The ritual of circumcision, the keeping of the ordinances and the laws became accepted, especially in the eyes of men, even in people that didn't have a relationship with God. Well, I don't know God, I don't care about God, but I've been circumcised and I don't kill people. So I'm pretty good. And that was never the point. That was it. Circumcision stood for the keeping of the law in years following. But listen, the law was never intended to save man. The law was a revelation of the character of God and the attributes of a life that's connected to God. That as you connect to him, those things will become your values because you're connected to God. It was not the means of connection, but rather it was the outcome of being connected. Now, fast forward 2,000 years from Abraham to now Jesus comes and Jesus dies on a cross, pays the sin debt. He becomes the ransom for the world. And what does that mean? Listen to how Paul explains it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says these words. He says, we give thanks to the Father which has made us competent or acceptable to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his Son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Through the blood of Jesus, our sins are forgiven, not through the keeping of covenants. Listen to what he says in chapter 2. Verse 10, he says, And you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also you Gentiles are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, wherein you are also risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he made alive together with Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses or sin blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. In other words, when you put your faith in Jesus and came into relationship with God to him, the circumcision happened in your heart. It was a a circumcision, he says, that was made without hands so that now you are complete in him. Peter would say, 1 Peter, I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he would say that he has given us already everything that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him that called us. In other words, as soon as you came to know Jesus, God placed in you everything that you need for life and godliness. It is all there from that moment. You say, wait a minute, I didn't feel like, I didn't know everything. I didn't experience everything. What do you mean it was all there from that moment? Listen, there's still something maybe in the way. Sometimes the flesh needs to be cut away in order for what's in me to be fully realized, fully enjoyed, 
for me to become sensitive to what God is, is and what he's doing in my life. There's an issue. Something has to happen. There's a circumcision that has to happen. That is that now, it's complicated, I'm not pre-fallen like Adam where I, I just enjoy God all the time and appetites don't bother me. Nor am I all fallen where I just follow every appetite. But, but, but rather, okay, now I'm redeemed, which means I'm connected to God, but I still have a context for the appetites of the body. I have both. I know how to draw from God and I know how to draw from my flesh. There's these two things going on. What does that mean? It means that I have a choice that I choose which inlet and outlet the soul uses. And I am called now to draw my wholeness from my relationship with him and to be satisfied in him and to get my fullness from him and not from the appetites of the body which cannot satisfy. Surrender to Jesus is circumcision. Surrender to relationship. To walk with him is circumcision. It draws out what's underneath. And in that position, I'm saved, I'm in Christ, I'm in a relationship. The Bible teaches that I am not under the law. And that's what the message of the entire New Testament epistles, especially of Paul, are. And so the conclusion is that New Testament Christians are not under the law because Christ is the fulfillment of what the sign represented in Abraham. It's not a contradiction. But the cross becomes the missing information that harmonizes the two things and makes them one. Now, I know that's complex, but are you guys with me? So what's the call? All right, we understand the contradiction. We understand the conflict. We understand the conclusion that they came to and even the answer to the question. But what's the call for you and I today? It's this, is that the reason why this matters this whole concept. Why did they argue about it? Why not just go along to get along? Okay, you want to preach circumcision. They don't want to. Let's just have two churches in the same town. 2,000 years from now, they're going to have hundreds of churches. So let's just have two. You guys be the church of the circumcision. We'll be the church of the... Un Why didn't they just go along to get along? Why did they take the time to argue this, to figure it out? Why did it matter? Here's why. Because if connection to God is something, then connection to God is everything. And how we connect to God is the great issue of life. And if you cannot connect to God both ways, then one is right and one is wrong. Okay? So connection to God is the answer. That's what's at stake. And what Paul was arguing for is he was saying, listen, you cannot connect to God through the law because you'll never be good enough. You'll never do enough rites. You'll never say enough prayers. You'll never be holy enough. You'll never be good enough. It is Jesus and Jesus only that brings us into that place with God. And that is all there is. That's all there ever will be. And if you try to do it some other way, you cannot. Surrendering is the issue. That's the answer, by the way. That's the call. The call is that we are to surrender our lives completely to Jesus and to nothing else. Um, I, I was listening to a podcast yesterday. I worked late. Are you guys coming up because I'm out of time? You can. I'll, I'll go faster. <laughs> I was on my way home late last night, and I was listening to this podcast, um, and, and, and it was a conversation. Um, this, this father was invited to a business roundtable. 
uh, was not a Christian roundtable. It was a business roundtable. And the, um, the stipulations of being invited or, or attending this roundtable is that you had to have a business that had a, a, a gross um, worth of $100 million or more. And the cost to, to have a seat at the table was $100,000. So this was an elite group of business people. And, and this guy who, the father that was on the podcast, uh, he was invited because he, they wanted to, him to share some ideas with the group. So he didn't qualify uh, financially, but um, he qualified intellectually. And so they invited him and he brought his son along and they were having a conversation about it. And so I'm just intrigued by what, he, what they're talking about, uh, what, what took place there and the ideas that were being shared. And, and at one point, the son said this. He said that, that it was somewhat savage because these people go there and, and they're, they're, they're kind of like ruthless shark tank type people. And, you know, they'll, they'll just tell it like it is. So they come there to, to bounce ideas off each other and get advice. And that's what it's for. But they're not necessarily nice to each other. And so they, it was saying that there was this one male CEO and he was talking to a female CEO of another company. And he, and he said this. He said to her, he said, I could 10x your business in a year, but you wouldn't do it. And she said, what do you mean? And he said, I could 10x your business in one year, but here's, here's the catch. You would have to surrender control. You surrender control, and I'll 10x your business in, in one year. But you won't do it. I know you won't do it. And then, you know, they got in, the discussion went off. Okay, now I'm not a business person. I'm not necessarily interested in business things, but I was like really into this conversation. So I get home, I go to bed, I wake up this morning, and, and I'm in, trying to be more disciplined to turn my first thoughts towards God when I first wake up. And so I opened my eyes this morning, and my first thought was Jesus. And, and I'm telling you, this morning, I heard as much as I can testify to you, the voice of God say to me, I can 10x your life, but you won't do it. I was like, whew. And I sat right up, and I just sat there for a minute. It's like stunned. I knew exactly, because it meant surrender. So I went downstairs and I started to think about that a little bit more. And I was like, Lord, t- 10x my life. And then I thought, Lord, I don't want my life 10x because I can't even handle and manage the 1x <laughs> that I have right now. And I don't have a great capacity already. And there's, there's like already a lot of X's in not, you know, just like it's, it's way more than what I can handle. Lord, I don't want you to 10x my life, but I desperately want to enjoy and extract everything that you have for me. And if that means surrender to you, then Lord, I'm in. But I even surrender that because I don't even know what that means. (laughs) But Lord, I want you in my life. And one of the things that God's got me doing lately, and and I, I, I don't I'm not the same every day. I don't do things the same every day. I'm not like that pattern of a person. But what he's got me doing right now is he's got me answering uh, four questions that Jesus asked. Jesus, Jesus at, f- at different occasions, asked questions to his disciples. And, 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 and so I've been taking those questions, making them personal. And here, here's what they are. Number one is, who do you say that I am? Jesus asked his disciples that. He said, who do you say that I am? And at first you go, oh, you're the Christ. No, no, no. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Don't, I don't want... I don't want you to tell me what you tell others I am. You know the right answer. Who do you say that I am? And I want you to just think about that right now. Who do you say that Jesus is? Not theologically, not in your mind, not because you've read the Bible and you know what the right answer is, but what you believe 
and the way that you act and the way that you respond to God and the level of guilt and emotion and the way you relate to other people, what does your life say about what you believe about who you say Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? It starts there to be honest with that. Because when I'm honest with that, really, I have to say, well, Lord, I know you as shepherd. I know you as um, father. I know you as Google. I know you as teacher. I know you as disciplinarian. I know you as the one who sees all things and knows all things. But, but Lord, really, do I really know you as savior? Or do I still feel like I'm trying to obtain something? Do I still feel like I have to do it myself? Do I still feel like I have to arrive at something? Do I really know you as friend? You said you're a friend, but do I really know you as friend? Do I really know you as in that way? I know you're leading. I've known your provision. I've known your protection. I've known your help. But do I really know you as the Christ, the son of the living God? Until you do, then you've got nothing. The second question that Jesus asked his uh, disciples It was the first question, actually, that Jesus asked. The very first one in his public ministry, when the first people came to Jesus, he looked at them and he said, what do you want? Or what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? I want you to think about that question. If Jesus came to you and said, what do you want me to do? What's your answer to that question? Listen, do not say, your will be done. Okay, yes, I know that's that's kind of the right answer. But I think when you say that, when Jesus comes to you and says, what do you want me to do? in your life. And we just say, your will be done. He says, all right, I'm going to do nothing then. Let's wait until you figure out what you need. Because he tells us to be specific. So don't be generic and also don't be vain. Don't be like, Lord, I want a million dollars. He's going to be like, he's just going to shake his head. He's going to be like, that's not what you He's like, what do you really? Sit down and think about it. Like Solomon. What do you want? God came there. What do you, what do you really want God to do in your life? Take a week and think about that. What do you want him to do? Lord, what do you want me to do? Do it every day. Lord, what do you want? He says, what do you want me to do? Third question. This one's tough. And I'm almost done. I know. I'm so sorry. You guys are standing up here. You guys are very beautiful. All of you. you know. Third question, Jesus, it was the last question that Jesus asked. It was to Peter specifically. And after Peter sinned and was restored, Jesus looked at Peter and he said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yeah, Lord, I love you. Then then Jesus made it more specific. He said, Peter, do you love me more than these, the 153 fishes that were there? Do you love me more than these? And and really, here's the question that Jesus is asking you. What do you love more than Jesus? And I want you to be honest with yourself. I'm not going to read you my list because you'll think he's not even saved. Okay, because when I'm honest with Jesus who already knows, I, I find that, that, that like I put him last so often. Like if I have three choices of what I can do in a moment and one of them is just spend time with God and the other ones are watch YouTube or fix something, guess what I choose almost every time? And to just be honest and say, Lord, there's a lot of things in my life that are just uncircumcised right now that I, I turn to for fulfillment over you. And all of a sudden, the picture becomes clear of the, the lack of surrender there is in my life. I start to see it when I'm honest. And then the last question is just simply, are you willing to surrender? Are you willing to surrender? Because that's where even the contradicted life has the missing information 
that then brings it into concurrence with him and with what makes sense. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Are you surrendering your life to Jesus? Because that's where life is. That's where it exists. Father, we thank you tonight for your word and and just I pray, Lord, that the truth of what this means, this relationship that comes through the cross and this reality that you're calling us into, what it means, I pray, Lord, that you would make it so legitimately true that you would bear witness of it in the spirit of those that are hearing my voice right now. That if connection to you is something, then connection to you is everything. And I pray that you would move us, Lord, to a complete and total surrender to you. So give us wisdom and help us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Let's stand, and I'm so sorry for going long. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, Leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.